We are the you know, proud official partner of the Kentucky Derby. What that means for us is that we can host a virtual Kentucky Derby in the game. We do it every month. Churchill has their own track. So they live in the ecosystem just like all of us. And they're also incentivized to get more people to come race at the virtual Churchill Downs. So a very traditional 150-year-old organization. So what do we do with this kind of like crazy wag me GM community compared to Churchill Downs community? But what it allows is this sort of like Kentucky Derby can matter all year round. It can matter in other locations. You can really start to make this brand uh, spread to other places. This episode is brought to you by Access Protocol. Access Protocol is the best way to get access to premium crypto content without the ads, without the annoying subscriptions that are impossible to cancel. It's crypto native. It's here today. Go check them out. What's up, everybody? Welcome to another episode of Lightspeed. Today, we are joined by Ian Cummings, who has been in gaming for over 23 years. He worked at EA Sports, Zynga, FanDuel, and now he's full-time in Web3. While he's at EA, I think there's a fun fact. He created the Hit Stick, which if you've played Madden before, it's how you absolutely destroyed people. Probably not allowed now with CTE and everything that's going on, but um, pretty amazing background, Ian. So welcome to the show. Thanks. Yeah, so happy to finally be on here. Uh, I've been following you guys forever. Well, thank you. Yeah, we're pumped to have you on. I think it'd be interesting to start with your background in gaming and how I believe it was NCAA 1999 that changed your trajectory. Yeah, look at you with the good research. Yeah, um, a, a friend of mine uh, at, at college, I was at the University of Tennessee. He was an absolute stud at NCAA 99. I mean, just destroyed everyone that came across him at every exploit in the book. Every time you'd play him, you would just get sacked. You would fumble every time you ran the ball. It was just so annoying. Uh, just so happened that EA Sports was going around uh, in a van with a couple of with a couple of QA people trying to recruit college kids to be testers. And so they showed up at the University of Tennessee. They went to most SEC schools, and they showed up. He destroyed everyone in the tournament. Uh, they invited him to go to the national championship because he was so good. Uh, I think I don't think he won there. He came in like second or third. But they said, "Well, would you like to be a tester?" And he said, I guess, sure. Um, this summer, you know, in between our semesters, can my buddy Ian come? He plays a lot of uh, games too. And uh, they're like, yeah, whatever. And so for like from that moment on, it was about three months, I was emailing EA like, hey, do I have a job? And this is again here in Orlando. Got the QA lead guy would just like ghost me. He was apparently turned out when I got here, he was just addicted to EverQuest. That's all he did. He didn't even really do any testing or anything. And so I, I literally have telling my mom, like, hey, I think I'm going to move to Orlando for the summer, you know, and be a tester. She's like, well, what's the job? What's this? I'm like, I don't know. I'm just going to go. And so uh, eventually we get to the summer and I just hadn't heard anything. And I just said, forget it. I'll, if, if they don't accept me, I'll go be a bartender or something. And so I just showed up at the front door of EA Sports. Uh, hey, can I be a tester? And they were like, yeah, whatever. <laughs> go go test Madden uh, 2000 PC. So that was my first game. And then, yeah, it was it. I mean, I was the red pill for game dev. That was always what I wanted to do, but I didn't really know how to get into the industry or anything. Uh, but that summer of testing, I mean, I, I never left the office. I would work double shifts. I just loved it. It was absolutely uh, eye-opening. Meeting programmers was like meeting rock stars to me, you know, finding out how the games were made. And so I spent that whole summer just really loving it, totally in love with it. And so they offered me a full-time job at the end of that summer. And I turned it down uh, because I was like, well, I got to get my degree. I can't, you know, I can't quit school. And I got back to school. And within like two weeks, I was like, why did I, <laughs> why on earth did I say no to that? So I dropped out and went back. That was the start of my career at EA, yeah, off of that little gaming tournament. Okay, so you were at, EA for, was it about 10 years? Yeah, a decade, almost on the dot. And, and was it Madden, more or less? Is, was that your main focus? Yeah, I mean, what, it, was, it was Madden and NCAA football over the majority of the time. So when I first got there, I actually tested NASCAR. I was a lead tester of NASCAR, which was the first game that we shipped on the original Xbox. Uh, so that was a fun, like, little, you know, I got a plaque for these types of things. And so it was pretty cool to kind of be a part of that hardware journey. Um, you know, they're very beginning and, and like I was there when they brought in the first PS2 dev kit, you know, and you're like, wow, you know, that was a huge jump. If you, if you guys are old enough to even remember, uh, <laughs> how that, how different things were going from kind of sprite based stuff to 3d. And so it was really cool to kind of see that step and, and as still a very young, you know, college kid in essence. 
And so once I got into production where I was designing the games, I did end up doing a lot of gameplay. That was always my favorite part. Uh, you know, you mentioned the hit stick that, you know, these things were always like, I really loved everything with the controller, how the game felt, the playbooks, all of the sort of cameras, all of that stuff has always been stuff I really loved. And so a lot of time there, as we moved into, uh, I guess they call it Gen 3, the Xbox 360, PS3 era, I did work on both games. So I did have to like, create a lot of stuff custom for college and for Madden. So we had a gameplay team that I was ahead of that sort of like split a lot of common shared code between the two games. Um, but then uh, once I had, I had expressed enough displeasure with the way Madden was going, they finally gave me the job to be the creative director on Madden 10. And so I did that for basically two years and then I was too burned out uh, and, and left after that. What is the story behind the hit stick? How did that, because that's like a, it's you know i think like i've heard rappers mention it in, in like like <laughs> songs so it's it's certainly uh very it's what you th- i mean especially people in america i don't think maybe people in europe wouldn't know it as well but like it's it's it's, it's an iconic mm-hmm. thing so what what is the story there yeah it's in the vernacular it's like i'm really proud to kind of like just out of nowhere have this uh you know, in the lexicon, we it's it's part of what you know, announcers say it. If you Google it or you search it on YouTube, it's just when there's a big hit in football, they go, oh, it was a hit stick. And it's wild, you know, that that was what it was. So I think what happened, if I remember right, around 03, um, NBA Live or one of those, uh, one of the other eSports games had done something with the right stick. Uh, I can't remember what it was. It was a dunk or it was uh, a dunk contest or there was someone in EA Sports that had done something with the right stick. And people were like, oh, that's cool what could we do next year on Madden with the right stick, you know? And I had just gotten into doing motion capture. They had let me run, you know, one of the previous guys that was there had sort of helped teach me how motion capture worked. And so I went up and, uh, you know, had this idea of like, well, what if you flicked the stick and it just blasted, you know, the other guy? Because we had done, oh, that's right. We had done the previous year, we had done playmaker control with that right stick. So the year that Vic was on the cover, uh, we had asked him as we, when he came into the studio and we all met him and we were just sort of like asking him, you know, what is going through his head? What, what is, you know, how does he approach the line of scrimmage and all that stuff? And he talked a lot about improvisation as he's rolling out, he'll, he'll point people in different directions and all this kind of stuff. And so that's where the first thing we did, we said the right stick was like, okay, um, point for a, a guy to change directions. And so as you're rolling out, I have a patent on that, which is wild, but as you're rolling out Vic. You get the right stick and he'll point and the guy will go in the other direction. So it was the following year at an 05. We're like, we need something for defense because that was only offense. Well, all right, defense. That makes sense. Flick a stick and you'll hit a guy. So anyway, all that to go back to motion capture. I basically was like, this is going to be my first shoot that I run all by myself. We shot in Vancouver and um, I had, you know, we had this idea that we were going to just have these huge hits and we didn't really know how, who we could get to do it. So I call a friend of mine, my best friend, actually growing up, who I played Madden with my whole life, and my buddy Ted Welch, and he's actually an actor. He was a, a collegiate uh, football player uh, at like a D3 school. And I say, hey, do you want to come up and do this Madden mocap shoot? Uh, he's just like, I don't know. You know, I'm kind of out of shape, and, you know, I'm not sure. I, like, I'm, I'm big enough for this and that. I'm like, dude, it'll be, it'll be fine. It's like 2500 bucks a day. You'll, you, and he's like, all right, I'm there. So he shows up in Vancouver and he has no idea that I'm like, you're going to be the tackling dummy for this feature. (laughs) And uh, so I tell, like, we line up, we get there. And the other defender was this guy, Zach Zadalis, who had played at the University of Florida, who was like 6'4", brick house monster. And Ted's like 6'1", 6'2", out of shape. And I was like, all right, so this first one, you're just going to run at him and he's going to run at you. <laughs> and I was kind of like, maybe close your eyes. I don't know, you know. And I mean, the first hit I think gave him a concussion. It was ridiculous. You know, he's just teed off on him. And then we had to go all the way around the angles, you know. It was like, so he gets that first one. And I'm like, all right, move over a half a degree and do it again. You know, all right, move over half. Because he basically, you know, he had to fill out the whole like rotation. And, uh, <laughs> I mean, after the third or fourth one, like you could tell he was absolutely bell rung, you know, like just back then, of course, you don't really understand uh, what kind of damage it was. But all that to be said, we were 23, you know, 24, like, and it's just two buddies from Hendersonville, Tennessee, 
that had had this random idea. And I, of course, unfortunately put him up to it. And, uh, but now it's like, that's a, a lot of those animations were in there forever. Um, you know, I think they've recaptured some, you mentioned the NFL, not too thrilled with some of those early ones that we did that were like really violent. Um, but you know, we, we contributed to the, the, the national conversation with this just like random idea. Um, but yeah, I have, I had a Twitter thread I did like maybe a couple years ago. I was actually going to rebring it up and just, cause I sent Ted some emails of like, you know, could you, could you respond back with like, what were you thinking? What happened? You know, what was your thought process as you like, had he had no clue, just shows up in Vancouver. And then it's like for basically two days straight, get hit as hard as possible in the face, uh, while, while running with his eyes closed. Uh, so yeah, that was where it started. Mm-hmm. that's epic yeah the hit the hit stick was infamous before that if you wanted to tackle someone and get like a big hit on the game you had to dive you had to hit dive. Like x and that's all yeah. you could do um $2,500 a day isn't bad and uh that Michael Vick game for anyone that didn't play Madden or isn't as old as me he was the best player in Madden history that game was broken you, you Un- could not so broken Vick. unstoppable <laughs> yeah. those were the golden days though I mean I think 04 and 05 were definitely the best ones we made and and that was the best part. 04 was very like heavily, of course, like if you use Vic, he was kind of unstoppable. And that was sort of fun. It was a tech mobile style, like Bo Jackson moment of like, all right, you and your buddies have to agree handshake deal. All right, no Vic, you know, uh, but then 05 really balanced it pretty well. And, and, uh, that was a good, um, sort of backstory too, of like, we met with real coaches that year, a lot of them and asked them, how do they stop Vic? Because they were having the same struggles that Madden was, you know, it was like, we didn't have defenses that were, there was no such thing as a QB spy style defense until Vic, you know? And so there were things that they were like, well, here's what we've had to do to contain him. And we implemented all of that in 05, as well as the hit stick. And it was all these other like defensive modes that then like the game got, Mad 05 was really well balanced and it's still a lot of fun. So that was That's pretty favorite. wild. Mm-hmm. That's wild that you guys talked to like literal NFL coaches to see how you yeah. would, you, you might stop somebody in the game yeah. uh, based on the <laughs> yeah. real thing. Yeah. Um, because the play was just generally just you do a hail mary and then everybody just goes and then you just go with Vic and then that's uh-huh. that's an easy uh, that's an easy like forty yard gain. Um, yeah, <laughs> okay, yeah, running back so, and forth, you know, that was uh, yeah, golden era for sure. Quick break to tell you about Access Protocol, the easiest and best way to stay up to date on what's happening in crypto by following your favorite publishers. You can do all of it without a subscription, without having to worry about ads. And we all know subscriptions. How many do you have? 10, 20? Can you cancel it? It's all a mess. Well, Access Protocol solves this and they do it in a crypto native way. They have over 60 publishers that include CoinGecko, The Block, CryptoSlate, and a whole long list of independent creators. So how it works is you find your favorite publishers and you stake the ACS token. That's the Access token. And once you stake, you have access to all that creator's content without the hassle of ads or subscriptions that you can't cancel and you don't know how many you have. Access Protocol already has over 225,000 users that are finding new creators, that are reading content, and even receiving NFTs from these creators. Because one of the cool things with Access Protocol is that these publishers, they can know who their subscribers are. They can make it where, okay, maybe we'll do an in-person an event or maybe we'll do an nft drop and we'll do it only to our most loyal stakers aka readers in early 2024 they're even releasing v2 it's crypto native it's on solana and it's an awesome product but a link in the show notes to the hub uh it's the easiest way to get started so go check them out today quick break to tell you about an upcoming event i promise you don't want to miss it's blockworks biggest and best institutional conference called das london it's a two-day event happening in london this march we're going to have over 700 institutions 130 speakers and a couple thousand of us all under one roof crypto is in a position for the first time to actually onboard these institutions and they're showing up we have companies from blackrock to visa launching real products in the space we have the real world asset narrative taking off we have things like payments that have been exponentially growing and then we have things like deep happening in the solana ecosystem there's a ton of capital right now and this institutional space is going to be coming on chain it's going to completely change the industry whether you are an institution or you're a retail user or you just want to learn more about what's going on in the space this conference is for you you're going to be able to meet some of the best and smartest people in the space the speaker lineup is absolutely incredible and you'll get to hang out with me but the best part is you actually get 10 percent off your ticket if you use lightspeed 10 when checking out i'll put a link in the show notes um i recommend buying this today because one you'll forget about it two these ticket prices go up every single month so anyways i hope to see you there now let's get back to the show i want to get the story that the chronological ordering correct here so you were you you started with um you, you did some nascar which that was actually also a fun game i played that a good amount i would just go backwards and then just hit the cars when i get bored. yep same <laughs> um, <laughs> Uh, and then, and then you did Madden and then, so like, let's kind of maybe go through that, uh, at a high level. And then what did you do right after that? 
Yeah. So I, you know, I spent all that time kind of going through the QA, moving my way up the corporate ladder there at EA, right? Which is pretty slow and arduous. You know, you're, you're hoping for your one uh, to 3% uh, merit increase each year. You're really cutthroat against other people. And, you know, a lot of that stuff I just didn't like, of course. I just loved working on the game. And so as I moved my way up through the kind of ranks and, and then finally got that Madden, you know, lead job, the creative director job at, at EA was not fun at all for me. I'd gotten through those years to where I was a pretty good engineer. I could make uh, features myself. I was doing mocap. I could do audio. You know, it's kind of like a hatchet man at everything and you get to this spot of creative director and all i'm doing is making powerpoints uh all i'm doing is going to meetings uh big team you know 100 plus people uh fighting with uh, development managers over schedules constantly you know it was just kind of like a real drag and you know madden a lot of people don't realize how stressful it can be i mean that yearly release is never budging and you're trying your damnedest to make it sort of rise out of its you know flat area where everyone just sort of like, ah, okay, they know about Madden. You're always trying to get it up out into the mainstream. Like, well, this is as good as Call of Duty. This is as big as, you know, whatever big game. And so it was always very stressful. So I just got so burned out on that life, of like no longer being able to code, no longer being able to create, just really like convincing dudes and marketing why I thought I should do what I was doing. So I left uh, with a group of other people. There was a former DM of our studio who started a startup is called Rochambeau and um, raced around and about 10 of us all left on the same day from EA Tiburon and uh, built basically a little studio that was doing kind of social mobile uh, really early on Facebook game type stuff in 2010, 2011. And within a year and a half, you know, money was about gone <laughs> and, you know, our, our games were, uh, Commercial, very successful, like very, uh, not commercial, sorry, critical successes, not commercial successes, you know, just ripping through uh, runway. And so around that time, free-to-play had really started to take off. And um, I thought, you know, as a designer, you know, my, my role at this point was design director or whatever, you know, wherever I was going, I was like, I got to learn how free-to-play works. Because um, I'd come from this, you know, Madden world where we're just cramming in the coolest feature we can think of, you know, we're trying to do all this top level polish. And I thought, well, free to play is really kind of the future here. I got to learn it. So I went to Zynga uh, after that thinking they are going to be the best, um, you know, chance to learn like the, the sort of science of, of free to play. Cause they, I mean, at that time, you know, my mom was spending half her salary on Farmville, you know, and, and it was just sort of like, what are they doing? You know, it's, it, it, it was crazy. So I spent about a year and a half uh, there and that's where I really started to get the itch of like, okay, I need to build my own thing. Like, I think I can do this myself. I sort of learned from the best of all these like different various genres and various styles of games and, and my coding chops and unity were, you know, were all kind of bubbling up. I thought well enough. And then of course app store was like now this moment that, Hey, you can release a game yourself and put it out to the entire globe. Uh, it was mind-blowing. So I was like, all right, I got to try it. And so that's really what got me to build the very first photo finish game, uh, which was originally called Derby King, but that was built by myself um, and released in Australia alone. And that was just a little arcade horse racing game that my whole goal was just to see if I could do it, see if I could pay off the credit card that had bought the Unity license, you know, um, and it eventually like started to run away successfully. Like it started to... Um, you know, it would make $30 in a day on 30 users. And I'd be like, I can't be right. You know, so then I'd put the 30 bucks back into an ad campaign and it would get 60 or 80 new users. And then it would make a hundred bucks in a day. And I'm just like, this can't be right. You know, just like it didn't, I couldn't believe it. And so sure enough, I just kept stacking all the revenue back into marketing on Facebook ads. And before I knew it, I had a, you know, successful game and I had to build a game studio around it. Uh, and then in between there, FanDuel, I, I ended up working kind of like tandem with them. So I did some design and game development work with FanDuel at the same time as Photo Finish, the original one was growing. And then FanDuel got in legal hot water. Um, but that was a great spot for me. Again, I wanted to learn more about the real money and more about, you know, wagering and all these kind of cool skill-based gaming. So that it was sort of a 
a great opportunity to be able to do both. And, and, uh, so that was, uh, you know, once, once they got in all the legal hot water, they kind of closed the studio here in Orlando. And so I was able to go full speed back on photo finish. And yeah, we've been, uh, third time has been operational since then 2015. That's, that's interesting. FanDuel is actually, some of the co-founders are actually also on Solana now. Um, yeah. Nigel and I talk a lot. Yeah. Yeah. So that's a fun trivia fact. <laughs> why, uh, why horses? Why, why horse racing? How did that idea come to be? Yeah. People have asked that a lot of like, were you a fan? No, not a fan at all. Uh, had been to one horse race my entire life. It was like as a you know sophomore in college. Um, it was really for me kind of a combo of researching and trying to find a niche that I could build in. And that's been third time sort of MO since we've been in business is, uh, I think that, you know, as a small group of people, we can build very high end and high polish experiences that compete with teams of 20 or 30 or 50, but we can't compete when it comes to the marketing side. And so I, I thought about like, all right, should I make a football game? You know, that was sort of my first thing. Should I go toe to toe with Madden? And the resounding answer is no, there's no, they will destroy me. You know, they will destroy me from a marketing side. They'll probably destroy me from a legal side. And it felt like I can't play in the same pool that the EAs and Zingas are in because I, I mean, I saw the way they were. I saw how litigious Zynga was. I saw how litigious EA were. I was just like, I can't go up head toe to toe against those folks. So, but my thesis was that like, wow, I Googled top sports in the world. And I love sports. I love sports games. You know, and you're going down. Okay, there's soccer, football, there's NFL, there's tennis. There's, and I'm like, oh, maybe I can make tennis. It's not bad. You know, I'm like moving my way down. And uh, cricket. Well, I don't know how cricket works. You know, and the number five is horse racing. And so then I go to the app store, search for tennis, search for horse racing, tons of tennis games, tons of golf games, zero horse racing games. I mean, like, there were a few, but they were absolute trash, you know? So I'm like, okay, this feels like a sport that is underserved. You know, that was the first sort of thesis. And then as I'm looking at it, I'm like, well, this is pretty easy to make. You know, my, my, my coding chops aren't great. You know, I never went to school for engineering. I just learned everything on my own. So it's sort of like, you know, I can't, I can't really make a tennis physics sim very easily, especially online or something. You know, it was like horse racing. They kind of run on a lane. Like I could do that. Um, so there was sort of like these like thesis there of like, what could I do by myself? Or what do I think is an underserved, you know, niche? And then what is an area that, um, will EA will leave me alone and Zega will leave me alone. I mean, I was still very concerned that they would come after me if I did something. And so that really was it. And, but, but as I said before, like I did, I had zero expectations that the original photo finish would end up with, you know, 10, 15 million downloads, right? It was like, it was nowhere near that. I was like hoping I made $1,500. That was what I was going for. So uh, everything has been a little bit reactive since then. But it's cool to then see, though, that like the thesis was sort of proven of like, oh, there is an audience for horse racing games. No one has served them. Uh, it is a really fun sport to be a part of. It's exciting. Like it's got uh, all the great things about it. The real money, the competition, the, the session is only a minute or two. It's like it's perfect for. You know, so a lot of these things fell into place. And so maybe we got lucky on half of it, but the other part was really like, you know, part of the thesis to try it. Yeah, there's like two things there that are quite important. And I, I want to highlight for just anybody, especially founders who might be listening. And, and so the first is you worked backwards from the market, right? That's that's quite important. Most people just have some random idea and they're like, okay, I'm just going to force into the market. It's like, that's not going to work, okay? Um, you literally worked... I don't think I've like you could not have worked more backwards from the market. You literally, <laughs> right. looked, yeah. you literally yeah. looked at what was happening, the niches, the underutilized parts, and then you're like, okay, I'm just going to build something for that. So that's really the way to do it, um, or at least it's the most uh, successful way of doing it, in my view. And then um, two is like you didn't. It's not like you just uh, had this innate uh, passion for horse racing to, uh, since day zero. It's like many many times you actually build something, and then after you're like start appreciating more and more and then you're like okay wait a minute this is actually really cool so it's, it's actually like the, the passion kind of sometimes comes after the uh uh like the work you put in so i think those are two important things you started kind of um getting some success like maybe indie game success with this thing and you were kind of reinvesting the money you made into uh, marketing and whatnot 
set up a little studio. Why? What happened such that you're like, okay, I, I need to use crypto for this? Like, what, what, how did crypto <laughs> right. come into play? Yeah, that's, I mean, it was really, it's funny how all these things have stacked to put us where we are because they all lead, all the roads lead right to it. And so what had happened, right? We, we launched the first horse racing game, Photo Finish, you know, or Derby King, whatever. Huge amount of downloads, l- low amount of revenue. So meaning, you know, we would get a dollar per user maybe. Uh, that was sort of it. That was the lifetime value. So as ads got harder and harder and more expensive, you know, we tried to add more features and build more stuff, you know, try and basically increase LTV of the users. It was always really difficult. The game, of course, as like, as you recall, I built by myself. So it was just awful and hacky and just terrible to work with. So we said, all right, you know, let's make a sequel to uh, the original. That was around 2018. And the goal of this new game will be to, you know, put massive spend into the long tail. So whereas the first game was really high retaining up front, very low spend, let's do the other way. And let's go like long-term retention, long-term infinite meta game, you know, infinite spend. And, you know, trying to utilize these things I'd learned a lot more at, you know, Zynga or FanDuel, trying to get more uh, revenue. And so we succeeded at that. Horse Racing Manager was a game that had low DAU, but insanely high spend. I mean, certain players spent over six figures on this mobile game that, you know, there's no money out. It was just purely entertainment. They were competing against each other. And, uh, but as we got farther and farther into that game, it was like, how do we increase the audience of this? It was, it was very hardcore. And we started looking at like, okay, well, let's start doing some real money stuff. Let's start thinking about betting or uh, breeding with each other, you know, open ecosystem type ideas. And anything we attempted was immediately shot down by Google and uh, Apple in terms of that area. Now, obviously, this is early 2019-ish. You know, we were looking at like even having a version on the web uh, that would have a little more of an open purchasing and pay- payment pr- platform. Well, that was a TOS violation and get us delisted. You know, so there's all this like kind of centralization problems of Apple that were happening. And so as we started looking around and like we'd kind of just let them both fade down into nothing. They were just in maintenance mode. We had spun up a little studio idea for Glue Mobile where we were working on like a little fishing game for a little bit. The horse racing game was just sort of like on, you know, sort of cruise control. And uh, start of 2021 is, is when I saw Top Shot uh, finally kind of lift off. And that was like, oh, crypto's now here. You know, people can now accept this. I'd seen and, and tried CryptoKitties and, and other stuff early on, but thought, well, this doesn't work. These gas fees and all this stuff is insane. You know, it's just like this is only for crypto nerds and <laughs> crypto maxis. shouldn't say nerds. We're all crypto nerds at heart. Right, Mert? Um, but the the biggest problem there was like, well, can can our current horse racing games utilize this idea or, you know, and and not really. And so, but in my head immediately, though, it was like, what would happen if we made an open game, like entirely where we are no longer in control of really anything? Um, what would that feel like? And so I spent like a week kind of prototyping, drawing, writing, drawing up stuff of like, if this was kind of top shot where every horse was an open, you know, item that they could buy and sell from each other, what does it, what does it mean? So that's where I started getting into the like, well, I'm looking around and seeing the supply issues that these people keep running into. And so that's where I started writing up, well, like what happens if they age and they die? And, you know, so it just really kind of organically went from there. And by the end of 2021, you know, maybe the middle, middle part of 2021, word was getting out that I was working on this, like between my friends or whoever. And I mean, VCs were like, pounding down my door to invest in us. And so I'm like, hmm, all right, so maybe this is legit. You know, maybe I really need to do this because it was really just like the idea. We got two successful horse racing games. What if we made a Web3 version where now we no longer have to have this big wall in front of us. We can do real money. We can do, you know, uh, wagering and betting. Uh, we could do all of this utilizing the sort of financial side of crypto. Um and, and started from there. Um, so that was really like the kind of jumping off point. The other was also, I spent like a good, I think it took three months and about 60 grand of my own money to get a legal opinion first before we could even do anything. 
because I was so scared that like I was seeing all these games and to me I'm like that's illegal <laughs> like you know even like Zed Ron at the time everyone was like oh did, did you look at Zed and like I looked at Zed and I'm like that's illegal you know like you can't I can't do that you know it was like that's real money gaming in Florida that's illegal um so it really was a lot of that uh stuff too before I got into like actually accepting fundraising and then growing off of that Ian, what are some of the the factors that have set Photo Finish apart? Because Zed Run is something that really took off, I think, in 2021. Saw a lot of people talking about it. It's a horse racing game. But I, I know like one critical component you talked about is the life cycle of these horses. And you introduced this concept called the power law, which I'd never heard of before. Can you describe that for us? I think it's really interesting. Yeah, yeah. I mean, so like, again, Zed, I, I try to not knock on at all because I think it was amazing what they did uh and those guys reached out to us and we chatted way back in the day 2019 about sharing our horse racing engine with them and stuff so there was never any like bad blood we're not in some crazy competition because i think they are they're totally different games they made an arcade style game we went hardcore authentic sim um but i looked at you know maybe in my opinion what i saw was happening with them at the time because i bought Z horses you know early on and I bought Top Shot moments, and I, I kind of couldn't believe that all of them were going to have inflationary supply with no decay. Um, and maybe this was just, yeah, the fact that I had been living in free-to-play for so long, you know, had gone through the sort of Zynga boot camp and, and all of these things that it's like uh, this power law or the power curve, you know, if you if you continually increasingly add assets, like you've got to chase it. You know, so if, if some user is getting better and better and better and better, what does the new user do? Not, like he's never going to catch up. And so you have to keep creating assets up at the top of the curve. And then you end up creating this game that's like only for the top 1% of the people that are playing. And I mean, look at any mobile game now, you know, uh, Clash of Clans or Clash Royale or something, you know, they're just like, they just keep making new assets for the top end of people. And everyone that's new, they've got to grind their ass off for, you know, a year to get caught up into that new sort of thing. And so, you know, when I thought about where we were with Horse Racing Manager, the 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 job that we had to do on that was very demoralizing. What you're doing is making, you're churning out content. We call it a content treadmill. You're doing it at the top end of that power curve. So you know, anyone new is not getting it or seeing it, but that's how you monetize these games. And so I thought, well... You know, what we had learned with Horse Racing Manager was uh, horses aging and, and leaving the game is like the whole point. That's the that's a, such a more interesting meta of a long game of create a great bloodline rather than create a great single horse. And I thought that was pretty much the no brainer. And my concern was, would the gaming community be OK with that? When we announced, I mean, I was like. This is the game. I'm not going to change this part, but I don't know if you'll like it, which is that whatever you buy is going to die. You know, that was really a different, like everyone in, in uh, 2021, NFTs, they're immutable. They're going to last forever. I'm going to take this and give it to my grandkids. I'm going to use this thing that I bought here in Fortnite 10 years from now. You know, they had this whole like notion that every asset on the chain was just like locked in time and amazing forever. So I was actually pretty concerned. I'm like, we're going to come out and be like, yeah, it's actually not that <laughs> it's you have your horse. Yeah, but it's going to, it's going to die in eight months, you know, or, or whatever, 24 months. But I think that was so critical. I mean, when I explained that, I didn't say it out of negativity. I said, this is why we have to do it because the game won't last if you don't. And that was, I think Zed's, you know, and not just that every crypto games, Achilles heel is an inflationary supply. That, okay, now there's 100,000 of something, there's 200,000, there's 500,000 of something, and there's the same 10,000 users. What happens? Prices go way down, you know, users leave. So you have to have this sort of pull back. So either you, creep, you keep doing the power creep or you pull them away, you decay stuff, right? I mean, it's just kind of the two options you have. And I thought, well, horse racing is perfect. This is how it works in real life. They, they race for a year and then they retire. They get the hell out. You know, Secretariat, I always said this in the decks. Um, secretariat, amazing horse ran for a single year, you know, like imagine if he ran for 30 years, <laughs> like what would have happened to the rest of the industry? You know, yeah, maybe they'd had some fans, but no one else would have won anything. No one else would have been, you know, interested. It's kind of the Jordan, <laughs> but, but way worse. So I think that that's been the key part. Just make a bloodline. Don't make a single horse. And, and, um, 
once they know that that's the case, you can't, uh, you can't change that on people midstream. Usually, uh, they have to kind of sign up with the beginning, knowing that, um, then you're, then you're okay. But, if, but otherwise, if you've got a runaway inflationary supply problem in your game, you can't all of a sudden be like, all right, never mind, we're going to burn everything. Um, they, they're not going to be super cool with that. One one comment I have to add to that. So I think it's a horse ages a year every four weeks. And these horses, you race them, you can breed them, uh, you can have a stud, obviously, then if it's a female, you can have babies. Um, but I've actually seen people write obituaries about their horses when they die. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, people not, are passionate yeah. about this. And they're not even dead yet. They're just retired. So they don't actually die until, you know, what's the first crop is going to die at the 25 month mark or something. That I imagine there'll be some tears shit you know because it's not just they uh stopped racing but now they're gone and we're gonna you know switch the art out with a statue and you know that that i you know obviously we're, we're delaying we haven't built all that yet got a little time to get there but yeah i was pretty surprised when people when the first crop retired out like forcefully they had to stop racing when they were turned eight or turned nine or whatever the eight it's always there were people like writing these yeah heartfelt goodbyes to their virtual horse i'm like man that's how you know he's got something special though you know when people are really like mm-hmm. um digging into the lore and the fiction that much it's pretty awesome yeah so th- talking about that i mean um i think most people who weren't very early to solana don't know this but you guys were really one of the earliest nft projects well I mean, you're a gaming project you're an nft project but you had an nft um it was right around the time of Right before NFT Summer took off, I would say you guys had the Stylish Studs, um, which was actually my first NFT or my first set of NFTs. I didn't just get one. Um, and uh, I remember I went to like a, a get together with my friends and I was like, yo, guys, I just sold this like online horse for like a few thousand dollars. They're like, what? <laughs> <laughs> you didn't believe me. Yeah. Um, and but um, and, and I like at that time, I used to do like research posts and I was I look at your guys' background. I was like, holy shit, like. It's very legit. Um, these guys had a game before. They were at EA. Um, can you talk a bit more about what the go-to-market around NFTs around that time was? Like, you, So you had Stylish Studs. And then I, I believe you called them Fine Fillies or, yep. or something like that. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, that that was like a pretty complex uh, go-to-market. So how did you <laughs> – what was that like? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the look behind the curtain there is us really doing a lot of stuff on the fly. Um you know, so we had started development on the game and, um, you know, we had VCs lined up, ready to give money in. And I'd been talking to all the different chains, like, you know, everyone out there uh, was talking with us, trying to kind of woo us over, you know, to bring a horse racing game to them because they, they all wanted to have the next Zed, right? I mean, every chain wanted a Zed beater or a Zed, you know, companion or whatever you want to call it. And uh, so when I got to talk to Colleen at Solana, at that point, I knew nothing about Solana. I'd never even done anything, but I had a couple of friends saying, hey, I just bought Solana. It's, you know, 10X in the last day or whatever, the crazy rip that Solana was on back then. And um, I was like, oh, that's that sounds cool. And I, and I just loved him, man. I mean, he was like, he got it. He understood what I was coming to it, you know, with. And and uh, I thought, well, yeah, this seems like a really good. And then he introduced me with Tolly and we talked, you know, briefly. I was like, man, this guy's super smart. These guys are it just seemed so much more connected to the real world use cases that I was looking at. Whereas a lot of the other chains, it, it felt kind of uh, academic, I guess almost, you know, it was like rather more, more of the decentralization or this and that, you know, they would talk a lot about us running our randomization engine on chain and things like that. And I'm like, I don't really care about that. You know, I don't really, you know, I, I don't want to spend a hundred dollars every time I race uh, on fees. So um, there was a lot of that sort of disconnect. And so with Solana, I was like, he, he basically said, hey, you know, they just wrote this program to MIT, um, you know, on Metaplex. Here's the tutorial if you want to go check it out. And so it was literally like, well, let's try it. Let's see what it does. Um, and so we priced it super low. And I posted in our Discord of current mobile game users, hey, we're doing this MIT um, to try and, you know, see what it's all about making a new sequel. You know, if you guys get in on this thing, maybe it goes up. Maybe it's going to be cool. You know, it was like kind of, it wasn't really a fundraising thing because it was, we put it so cheap. It was 0.2 soul when everyone else was doing three and five and, you know, huge amounts. It was just sort of like, yeah, let's just see how it works. It was kind of a prototype. 
and I thought we'll reward our player base, kind of the idea. We'll reward the current players. And Big Brain and Dudas uh, posted about it. And in about 10 minutes, 15,000 people appeared in our Discord. I was wondering. And, yeah, and it was mayhem. I mean, I was like, oh, my God. And it was exciting, so exciting. You know, like this huge injection of, uh, you know, energy. But then all of a sudden, I'm like, oh, no, our, our poor, poor player base. They're like, what the hell is going on? You know, they were all scared. They didn't buy any soul NFTs. They didn't want to. They didn't, they all, a lot of them didn't have computers. They were all on mobile only. So it was like, it was a huge disconnect for me. I thought we're going to convert all these current users into, you know, Web3 game, game sequel. And I think we got like three of them. You know, it's the only ones that came over and the rest were all brand new. Wag me this, GM that, you know, all these things. I'm like, what is happening? The memes, everything was going crazy. Um, so then it was like, what are we going to do now? You know, because we've got to make this game that we know will take at least a year to build. And you've got people in there with like the timeline of second. What's up with the floor price? Why is it trying you watch it? You know, we're like, we did not expect that level. You know, it's like when you, when you hear Kevin Rose talk a little bit about that of Moonbirds, of course, his, you know, from small to these huge prices, he wasn't expecting it. I, I do sympathize with that a little bit of like, he should have expected it. He's a lot more popular than, than uh, me or us. But at the same time, like we weren't prepared at all, you know? So then I'm like, I don't even have a community manager. I don't have anyone to run Discord. Like we had channels that were, people could post in public announcement channels and stuff. You know, we didn't, we hadn't set up any of the permissions. We hadn't done anything. Uh, so we were like just totally on fire for six months. I mean, I was having major anxiety attacks and had to get on medications. And I mean, it was just like, I wasn't sleeping because it was such a massive jump from what our sort of day to day was. And, but yeah, then it, but as a team, you know, as you kind of like rally around, we're like, look, we've got to extend we're going to lose all these people if we don't give them something to do for the next year, because the game's going to take a really long time to be out. And, you know, we did end up getting a beta out within about six months, but even then it was like, how are we going to fill six months uh, given everyone's, you know, hourly <laughs> attention span. And so that's where we started doing a lot of the NFT ideas. Let's read these together. Let's airdrop a bunch of them to people. Let's do these uh, breeding tools. Let's let's give them previews of how the genetics work. You know, so it was kind of like this long tutorial that we were giving to people to give them something to do, to keep them engaged, uh, all within the Solana NFT space and ecosystem um, in, in sort of a way to kill time until the game got playable. Uh, so, yeah, we, we had not planned. Like, my first pitch was people that own... And this was to my original community. People that own this stylish stud will get access to play the game first. That was it. That was my pitch. And, you know, soon after that, I'm like, that's not going to cut it. <laughs> like, there's way too much energy on this to just be like, yeah, this is just, a, it's just a pass to hang on to. And that's it. So, yeah. So we kind of like uh, spun up from there. Yep. Yep. I remember those days. Um, and you guys were super, extremely early. Um, I was just on Twitter one day and I saw a big brain just show this, like he talks about like the game and I was like, I don't, I don't give a shit. And then I, I looked at the picture of the horse and I was like, I was like, you know, I'm looking for a new PFP. I kind of like horses. So I'll just try it. That's the only reason I, I tried good. it out. Yeah. Um, and then, yeah, so that was, um, and then I, as I did more research, uh, uh, it, it was, I was very impressed because at the time it was just all scams. I mean, oh my goodness. Yeah. That was the hard um, part for sure. It was like, and and, it, and really difficult on me. I mean, I'm a very competitive person. I'm very like, you know, just I, I want to win at all costs sometimes. And it was really hard to go through like a year straight of scam after scam after bad project after non-doxed founder. Just mint and make millions of dollars, leave, mint, millions of dollars, leave. You know, and I'm sitting over here just struggling, like keeping everybody together, like, like floor no one cares about everyone no one trades the nft because they want to hold it for crown and, and you're just like dang man i did this all wrong <laughs> but i was so angry uh, i mean definitely i got very jaded on solana ecosystem through 2022 as most probably did um but uh i was happy that we stuck around you know because it's like 
I still had the belief in Tolly and, and Colleen, you know, it's like those, no matter what, it's like, I know that those two know what they're doing. Um, and so whatever ecosystem stuff is happening, it's kind of not really their fault. Um, it's the grifters and, but it's just, it's a big negative on the space. It's, it's, it's such a bummer that you know, I can't really tell my friends almost every, uh, slowly as the old uh, gamers have come over into the game, almost all of them have gotten taken for hundreds or thousands of dollars from scammers, you know, and it's just like, it's so hostile, this space. It's really frustrating. You know, um, I don't know, I don't know the solution, but it's really hard to imagine bringing Norbies in still because how easily they get scammed in discord or fished or whatever. You know? Yeah. Yeah. That's a good point. Um, you know, I'm going to now start asking some selfish questions. Uh, I want to know how the game works and I want to know how I can play it and I want to know how I can be good at it. Uh, mm-hmm. I know that big brain literally has like a full-time person, three or three full-time people. So for the audience, uh, soul big brain, you probably know he has three people full-time on payroll to <laughs> succeed in this game and, and breed these horses and they run like these stables Right. And, and I believe a few other NFT projects run these stables as well. So, like, can you just for somebody who's, first of all, let's say doesn't know horse racing and certainly doesn't know this game. How do I play this? How do I win? What's in it for me? Um, just give us the whole rundown. Yeah, I'll try to be as high level to it. It's hard to not get in the weeds when I've been working on this for so long. You know, again, it's like eight years of, of uh, nerdy horse racing stuff that we've crammed into this game. But. At the top level, it's get a horse and race it and hope that you win. Uh, and the horses have attributes just like Madden players do, right? Uh, they're Some of them are faster. Some of them are good on dirt. Some of them are good on turf. You know, they have all these attributes that you use as your skill as an owner to try and find a race that's best for them. So that's the top level managerial move. It's very low lift. It's uh, likened, you know, we, we our previous games where you would have to grind. You know, you would train them all day. You would hit million buttons you know it was sort of a the mobile games are very much a button clicker fest this is much more like a fan duel or a DraftKings. you set your lineup kind of you know you just say all right i got this horse he's really good on turf uh i feel like he's probably good at long distance so here's a race that i think i can win that i think i can afford to enter and so at the top level i mean that's it you find a race that you think you're good at uh, that's in your budget you know that your horse you think will win and you're always just trying to kind of there's a race going off every one, two, three minutes. And so you're, it's always on. And so you can try and find some time. You can wait two days, three days to find the perfect race for you if you want. So that's sort of the core and people that get in, that's pretty easy. But then the red pill <laughs> starts happening on the depths of the game. And so again, the horses are aging. So every, as you mentioned, Garrett, every month, basically they're getting older. So they all have uh, sort of a peak age determination down in their genetics and so now you're like okay well is he on his upswing or is it is he on his downswing or she my horse and so then you've got this decision to make i'm like well if, he, if he's getting better or is is this as good as he's going to be should i get rid of him you know is this is this horse going to be good enough to win this style of race should i try and trade should i try and dump it should i get another one should i get two and then as they start getting farther into their career now you're having to decide well should i retire it because I want to breed. I want new horses. This one's just, you know, maybe it didn't pan out. But if it's a female horse now, maybe if she breeds with a really top stud, then the next one will be much better. And I'll I'll hit the, you know, jackpot on the next stud or, or on the baby. And so then once you get into breeding, it's like crazy, crazy in depth, right? So the at the top level, again, those attributes are what you see. The speed, he's good at dirt, good at turf. Uh, but down underneath, they actually have a full genome. And so when they breed, it is a actual genetic simulation. Uh, even their coat colors are 100% accurate to real life coat color genetics. Um, and so every bit of the detail is there. So you get this kind of Jurassic Park thing where you're trying to mutate. You're trying to push him out of his normal. You know, you might see two horses and you think, okay, they're going to average together. Um, uh, a good speed and a good speed is going to be a good speed. But there are certain genes that express differently or pass differently. The allele is different when they're combined. And so then you're looking around the market of like, well, which one is passing better genes down to the progeny? 
and all of it's there. The entire history is there. You can go look at every horse's bloodline, his, his racing history, his parents' racing history. And so that's where people start getting like, really like, oh my God, this is like for me, right? This is because it's not for everyone, but the people that are really into that, um, now you can look at the rest of the population of horses and say, oh, here's a, here's a spot that no one's breeding into. If I can jump out in front of that, I'll win every race. Or, you know, there, there's all kinds of like little moves that you can make. Oh, if I try and grab some of that bloodline and bring it into my bloodline, I'm going to have this super thing, you know? So, and honestly, I, I've loved, um, our lack of work on that area. Like we literally do nothing and all of the game is happening from the users. All of the lore they're all talking about, they're doing streams, they're, they're creating fan sites, they're selling, they're creating ads for their stud. You know, they're, they're making like this whole ecosystem and world. And we just know that like the, the genetics underneath are making it random and variant enough that it, like, it's kind of unbeatable. It's an unbeatable, we can't even beat it. It's like an algorithm that will last forever. Um, and so I think that's, what's really got most people hooked. You start at the easy end and then you get really in depth of like, I want to dominate this thing for the long haul and the long haul takes months, right? There's no like. Fast forward, there's no cheat to it. And so I think that's is it, um, you know, is that so for high. is that for just like the intrinsic enjoy like because there's this um one of the biggest criticism of web three gaming is like games should be enjoyable intrinsically and you shouldn't need some external stuff. But in this case, uh not only is that there, there's also other stuff, right? Like when you win, I'm guessing there's some sort of financial something. Yeah, right? it's a horse case. So how does that work? Yeah. So the, I mean, the races are for real money. Um, if you want to, I mean, there are free races too, but most people are racing for real money. And so of course you want a winner. If you've got a loser, how long are you going to stick with it? Um, you're going to just probably take two or three losses and like probably give up on them. Um, but that's a great part of the market is that some people have a longer patience uh, than others. And so you can see, well, this guy lost three times in a row, dumped him because he's pissed at the horse, you know, he has like a, ah, I'll never win with that horse. Another smart owner can pick it up and try and like find another area for him to race in that maybe is profitable because you're not having to beat everyone. You only have to beat four or five other horses in a race. You know, you're just trying to find the right race that will, that will win. And so, yeah, we do also reward tokens on top. So that's sort of the, that's our UA or user acquisition marketing angle is if you're racing, you're earning a crown. And that's sort of the, you know, we've got that set to hopefully emit for, for infinity. It's like kind of doing a halving over time. So that's the way you're earning this crown token is just go race, just go race, just go race, you know, and you're able to earn some more of the crown token. Um, but I don't think, I mean, obviously there is a financial incentive there and a lot of people won't play if they're negative forever. I fully understand that, but it's not any different from poker or DraftKings or FanDuel. And that's how they work. The, all those games, it's like if you lose over and over and over again, yeah, you might bust out. But in this game, there's such a, a lot more to do that maybe you bust out and you can't race, but you're like, well, I'll just breed at least. You know, maybe maybe I'll get a good one next season. So they could bust out and quit racing because they just can't do it. But, well, I'll hang on to this one and I'll keep going. So there's something there always pulling them back. And we see that like every month, the first day of the season, all the new horses are born. I mean, it's every time every single user comes back that maybe has like taken the last two weeks off because they ran out of cash or whatever, you know, here they come right back in. It's like a big, it's like we have a mint, the excitement of a mint day every single 28 days because everyone's back to see what their foals are, see what other people bred. Um, but yeah, I do think it stands on its own without a token. I think it runs without it. Um, but we utilize that token as marketing. So it's kind of free marketing dollars. We're doing UA without having to, you know, with a, with a token that we created as opposed to having to like pay Facebook, uh, to give us, you know, ads. So that's, that's how we do it. Um, which I think, you know, again, it'll be less users that will play the less profitable it is. I mean, I'm not stupid. Um, but that'll be the game that we play once we find what is that amount of how much can we spend on a user? How much can we give away per user? You know? Uh, it's going to always cost marketing dollars to keep new users coming in. That's just how it goes. Um, but right now we have that really benefit of being able to not have to spend any money. Uh, just, just token to do it. Yeah. I saw a stat, I think it was over the last 30 days with the top 10 horses 
combined made over $75,000, which is pretty absolutely insane. Everything you're describing here is like a good way to have retention with your customers, which is something that all of DeFi struggles with. And the thing is with crypto that everyone talks about is like, what is the next narrative? And I I think the reason for that is that there's just attention saturation, the sense that there's no seasons, like it's not episodic, like the NFL, you have games on Sundays, and it's, you know, for one third of the year, and then it comes back later. So you always have something to look forward to. And there's storylines, whereas like crypto has some storylines, but it's just never ending. So at some point that speculation is going to run out. It's going to get saturated, right? And it sounds like that is almost like what you're fighting against. And that's where you've introduced this, you know, horse's age. And then you have this bloodline, you have these genetics. Is there anything else that you want to introduce into the game? Is there anything else you think that maybe founders and crypto should be thinking about? Because I think this retention piece is so important. Yeah, there's a million things, of course. Um, I think, you know, when I look at the final form of, of photo finish, what I'm excited that we're moving towards is is more decentralization. Now, it doesn't mean that it has to be like this, you know, multi-sig DAO controlled things, or, or I don't really care about that. It's more that like, we're already seeing this, a lot of interest level in people owning the tracks. So uh, Mert mentioned, you know, that Big Brain, he owns a large majority share of a track in the game. It's called Big Brain Fairgrounds. You know, he branded it with his own logos. And what that means is he's also getting some of that derby, the in-game currency that's flowing through that track that's helping him empower his stable. And so there's this great little loop there of like he's incentivized to host races at his track. He's incentivized to advertise at his track. He's incentivized to be an entrepreneur of this virtual, you know, race course. Um, and so as we think about that, you know, a year from now, two years from now, it's like we could hypothetically leave the game entirely. We could get out of the way entirely. The entire schedule, all of the races could be determined by the track owners. They could they could decide who's racing there, how much it costs to enter, which races they host. And we're just sort of like, well, and then they, what, what's cool about that is like right now we're trying to attack it very much from a design standpoint. We're trying to say, okay, this is the population of horses. You know, we're trying to like really get it dialed in and we've struggled. We've succeeded. You know, it's ups and downs. It's been very difficult. The population is always like sort of moving in and out. But if you put that out to an open market, like the market will level and find its water. The, the, the big brain, if he's got staff to go do the analysis on where to host the most successful races, you know, there's something really interesting about that idea of like an open ecosystem that they really fully control. And so, I mean, I think that's where I really am uh, stoked to see what Web3 can do, because that is the part, the ethos of just really like giving people an aligned ownership with you and them, uh, which was so opposite of how mobile was. I mean, mobile and free to play were very uh, antagonistic relationship between you and your user. You know, uh, you're trying to get them to continue to spend money over and over and over again, open loot box over and over and over again, you know, kind of preying on them. And I never felt good about it. I hated it. You know, it's like, that's the way you make money in mobile. Everyone said you charge them for energy, you charge them for a loot box. And it's sort of like, yeah, but that sucks. Like I like designing fun things that feel good. I like designing the hit stick. I don't like tuning how much to screw someone in loot box random number generators you know it's like that's no fun um so i think like the more that we can build into these uh sort of aligned incentive things with the game so like the track ownership again the horses i mean we have this army of players now that are our marketing team you know they're amazing because of course they're aligned to make this game do better all the players of madden just shit on madden 24 7 and, you know, they're not, well, they're not getting anything for, you know, destroying their own bags, you know, or anything like that. There's, they're not fudding their own bags. They're, so yeah, on instance, that, one you know, thing I think that is cool for people that don't play these games is that in Madden and NCAA football, especially in NCAA football, because it stopped in maybe 2012 uh, or something like yeah. that, is I'll that there's actually, there's actually people out there that have been updating the rosters in that last game every single year because you can download rosters from online. So they're actually updating it for these future teams. And that shows you that someone is taking ownership in it, even though they're getting paid nothing for that. Right? Yeah, there's nothing right. there. And so it's like if you can take that feature and bring it into crypto and then people can actually benefit from it, I think that's huge. Yeah, I mean, I posted last night so uh, on Twitter. It was just shocking to me. So one of our community members, this guy, Roaring Hammy, which you guys have probably seen in your replies, 
he's been in our community for basically since the beginning, just an unbelievable energizer bunny at Twitter. And he relentless, relentlessly shills photo finish to anyone that'll hear about it. And he's constantly experimenting with different ways. Like he's just reply, he's reply guy. Right. But so he has a video of the original, one of the photo finish Kentucky derbies, the virtual ones that we ran. And I looked at it last night, just so happened to see, he replies to like every major account with, Hey, have you seen this video? Hey, you know, like when they post something, isn't it wild that this, you know, he tries to slip it in organically. It doesn't really feel all that chilly. That video has a 1.5 million views now on Twitter. And I went and looked at the real Derby video on the real Derby account has half a million views. And it's just like, that is the difference. He's, he is aligned because of course he wants this game to be more successful. He's our marketing guy. And it's like, so we're all on the same page. (laughs) You know, I didn't have to pay him, but he's still rewarded by doing so by making the game a success. So I think it's, um, it's really special this world. I just want it to grow. I mean, I think Mert says it too. It's just so small. I was definitely tricked at the beginning by feeling like it was on fire and there was going to be a million users here when in reality, they're not, there's not that many like players (laughs) in this space uh, for sure. Yeah, (laughs) certainly not. Uh, But uh, I think maybe another Ultra Rail 3 might help. Um, and, (laughs) and, And so so okay final question is going to be um you you guys have done some interesting stuff uh with like NBC I believe and like the official horse races like real life horse races you've partnered with them in some sense what does that look like like what is what is how should we think about that because that seems quite under indexed on like so that seems like a bigger deal yeah so I mean the NBC relationship we've had for five years now, maybe six um that relationship is very like informal and chill basically if they have a race that they're running on a national broadcast that they want a prediction or a simulation of you know just like you imagine a three d version of then they hit us up and so we create those typically uh for the triple crown races and so what does that what that does for us is it ends up as an advertisement like as it as it runs, there's a, you know, install photo finish play now, you know, that, that, so we get this like free million dollar ad in essence for making those videos for them. Um, now, of course, I've always wanted to dig in deeper on that relationship every year they've asked, Hey, do you think, you know, you could build this? Could you build that? And I just haven't had time. Like if you look at, um, you know, Peyton Manning and those guys, when they do their broadcast, they've got all these touch screens and they're moving stuff around and they're doing all these like kind of stuff we did at EA too. And, I would love to do that, but I just, I just haven't had time. I mean, it's just not a core competency of us either to make a broadcast, you know, a 3D tool. Um, but then, so then the Kentucky Derby came off of that. So uh, Kentucky Derby, we are the, you know, proud official partner, official game of the Kentucky Derby. And so getting that license took years. Um, a lot of, a lot of discussion, very painful. But for me, that was how I thought we should, absolutely be in business with a company like this and, and form our moat. I mean, I obviously working at EA sports, you see how important the license is uh, to have the real teams, have the real tracks. And there's no bigger name in the sport than the Derby. And so to have the Kentucky Derby, basically w- what that means for us is that we can host a virtual Kentucky Derby in the game. We do it every month, every 28 days. So we have all the official branding, Churchill Downs, the Derby, and now, you know, that track ownership that I was mentioning, like, you know, Big Brain has his own track. It's like, well, Churchill has their own track. So they they live in the ecosystem just like all of us. And they're also incentivized to get more people to come race at the virtual Churchill Downs. So I think what we provide is really exciting. It's really early with, with them. You know, we're still trying to figure out what's the best avenue to approach because they are, um, you know, a very traditional 150-year-old organization, you know. Um, and so what do we do with this kind of like crazy fast <laughs> wag me GM community compared to, uh, the Churchill Downs community, but w- what it allows is this sort of like Kentucky Derby can matter all year round. Louisville can matter all year round. It can matter in other locations, you know, that you can really start to make this brand, uh, spread to other places. So, I mean, this year's Kentucky Derby is a huge event. It's the 150th anniversary. Everyone's kind of all sites set on this in May. I think we have over 40 photo finish numbers flying in from everywhere to come first turn club tables, VIP experience. Um, these folks, a lot of them have never seen a horse race. A lot of them have never done anything with the sport. 
they're coming from like Isle of Man. They're coming from Australia to Louisville um, to experience the sport that they've you know learned purely from the virtual version. So I think that's the big benefit is you can kind of like onboard the the poker fan, the daily fantasy fan, the sports fan, the sports better into this amazing sport um, that normally you can't really get into. Like if you wanted to own a horse, what do you do? No one really knows. How do you, how do you get a horse? How do you feed it? <laughs> you know, like that. Whereas this, you've got this kind of natural step through the game. So that's, I think what we're offering. And then of course, what they're offering is yeah, their brand and being able to say and be a part of this huge, massive brand, especially leading into 150 is super exciting for us. It's incredible that a crypto game and the Kentucky Derby have partnered together. You know, if you I know, any, man, it's insane. If you need yeah. any content at the Kentucky Derby, hit me up, give me a ticket. I'll be yeah. there. Come, come with. Yeah, I'll, I will hit you up after this because, I mean, we, we did we did the infield last year. Uh, we had a tent and it ended up being like there was no Internet because it's just that's how it is when you're there. So it ended up being kind of a bust on like we just showed a lot of people the game that ended up kind of it. We didn't like get a lot of new users, but it was a pretty interesting uh massive moment for me is I'm looking around and it's like Budweiser, you know, White Claw, BMW, third time. <laughs> I was just like, <laughs> what in the world? How did we get here? I mean, it would have been a massive deal signing if that was EA. So I think of my little tiny studio, you know, crypto game. Uh, it's uh, it's awesome, but they believe in us. I think, um, I think the NBC part really helped too, for sure. Love it. Well, Ian, thanks so much for coming on. You have a fascinating story. Photo finish is insanely cool. I didn't know about it until I was getting ready for this episode. So I'm going to put a link in the show notes. Everyone go check it out. And Ian, thanks so much for coming on. Yeah, guys. My pleasure. All right. We'll see you next time. All right. I've got a little ending note here. First, thank you so much for listening to the full episode. If you really liked it, hit subscribe. But secondly, make sure you sign up for DAS. This is BlockWorks' biggest institutional conference happening in London in March. I've included a link in the show notes and also a discount code. You get 10% off. Make sure to use Lightspeed10 when you sign up. All right. I'll see you there and I'll see you next time on Lightspeed.